0: ...to O'Brien or Goldstein to create ethnic matchups that would make their fights draw bigger crowds. And at a time when the heavyweight champion of the world mattered in a way in which no athlete now matters, Americans of all hues and ethnicities found inspiration in the story of a man who rose, in the words of his first biographer, from relief to royalty. Damon Runyon, who knew a fairy tale when he saw one, dubbed Braddock the Cinderella Man. At that time, to climb to the top of the heavyweight division was to ascend to the highest peak in sports, both in popularity and financially. On September 22, 1927, for 30 minutes' work, plus 9 minutes of catching his breath between rounds, Gene Tunney made $990,445 in his second fight against Jack Dempsey, more money than Babe Ruth had made in his 14 Major League seasons to that point. Eight years later, in 1935, in the midst of the Depression, the highest-paid player in the major leagues was Lou Gehrig, the Yankees' first baseman. The Iron Horse made $40,000, a significant sum to the average American, but little more than pocket change for Max Baer, Max Schmelling, and the other preeminent boxers of the era. That fall, when Baer fought Lewis, he earned $215,000, more than five times Gehrig's annual salary. But someone was needed to blow the champion's horn. In his later years, Dempsey, who was champion from 1919 to 1926, said, quote, "...I was a pretty good fighter, but it was the writers who made me great." Dempsey knew that the golden age of sport was an invention of the golden age of sports writing. In the 1920s and 1930s, radio was in its infancy and television was a rumor. The vast majority of Americans got their information about politics, sports, and entertainment from newspapers. In New York City alone there were nearly two dozen thriving dailies. The Times, The Herald Tribune, The Post, The News, The Sun, The American, The Journal, The World Telegram, The Wall Street Journal, The Daily Worker, The Mirror, The Staten Island Advance, The Brooklyn Eagle, The Star Journal, The Bronx Home News, The Long Island Press, and The Forward, among others. In 1927, no one outside Soldier Field saw Gene Tunney as he rose from the canvas after the long count to defeat Dempsey. In 1932, no one outside Wrigley Field saw Babe Ruth call his shot against Charlie Root in the World Series. The pictures were painted by sports writers. Giants such as Grantlin Rice, W.O. McGeehan, Damon Runyon, Paul Galico, Westbrook Pegler, and Frank Graham. Their syndicated columns were avidly read in the far reaches of the 48 states, and they used their talents to create legends. Rice, for example, was perhaps only slightly less instrumental than Newt Rockney in fashioning the mythology of Notre Dame football. By the 1930s, Rice was making more money, about $250,000 a year, than any of the athletes he covered, with the exception of the heavyweight champion of the world and perhaps gallant Fox Omaha and Count Fleet he had a chauffeur. To a man, the monarchs of Press Row considered Jim Braddock's impossible comeback the richest story they ever covered. It was one of the few they did not have to embellish to make resonate. I don't want to sound trite, Runyon wrote, but believe an old plot maker. Truth in Braddock's case is much stranger than fiction. But neither Runyon nor any of his contemporaries was paying much attention when the comeback started. Corn in Hash, Queens, New York, June 14, 1934. On the night of June 14, 1934, James J. Braddock walked into the Madison Square Garden Bowl, an enormous outdoor arena in Queens, New York. His pockets were empty. A week earlier, he'd turned 29. He was a father of three, a washed-up fighter, and a part-time longshoreman. As feared as his right hand had once been, He was among the most powerful punchers in the light heavyweight division in the late 1920s. He was equally adept at taking a punch. In 80 pro fights, only one opponent had ever knocked him out, and that was a technical knockout. He'd never been counted out. By 1934, Braddock had outgrown the light heavyweight division's 175-pound weight limit and was fighting as a heavyweight, at about 180 pounds. He was 6 feet 2 inches tall with a head of thick, curly black hair. Ruggedly handsome, he looked every bit as Irish as his name, and he wore a shamrock on his trunks and was sometimes known as Irish Jim Braddock. He didn't talk much, but when he did, the words were delivered from the side of his mouth, in a thick blue collar Jersey accent. His smile was always described as crooked. His parents, Joseph and Elizabeth O'Toole Braddock, had been born in England and immigrated to the United States in 1889 but they were both much more Irish than English or American, though there's no evidence that either ever set foot on Irish soil. They were raised in impoverished Irish enclaves in and around Manchester, where the Braddocks and the O'Tools clung to their Irishness, mostly because the English never let them forget where they came from. Forty-five years after Joseph Braddock escaped from the poverty and prejudices of northern England and made his way to America, his son James was struggling to clothe and feed his burgeoning family. He owed money to his landlord, the milkman, the gas and electric company, and his manager, to name just a few of his creditors. In the bitter winter of 1933-1934, he trudged through the streets of North Bergen, New Jersey in shoes that were falling apart. Most of the time, he was hungry. Braddock's decline as a boxer exactly paralleled the nation's descent into the Depression. After fighting for the light heavyweight championship in the summer of 1929, Braddock met defeat after defeat, first in big arenas at the hands of top competitors, and then gradually at the hands of boxers only a couple of notches above club fighters, tomato cans and ham and eggers, the dregs of the heavyweight division. He'd lost 16 out of 26 fights since the day the market crashed in 1929. Finally, on September 25th, 1933, he broke his right hand, his only real weapon, on the jaw of a 20-year-old heavyweight named Abe Feldman. The hand had been broken twice before, and Braddock thought it was unlikely that it would ever heal properly. If he somehow managed to scrape up enough cash to find a doctor who knew how to set the fracture, it would still take months to mend. By that time he knew he would be older and even slower than he already was, which was quite slow. Braddock announced his retirement, but virtually no one noticed. Braddock was often called plodding. Slow of foot doesn't begin to describe the inadequacy of his speed and footwork. He could punch, he could take a punch, he could even box a little, but James J. Braddock couldn't move, nor could he inflict much damage with his left hand. Incapable of fighting, he sought work on the docks of Hoboken and Weehawken. The man who just five years earlier had come within one punch of winning the World Light Heavyweight Championship was reduced to hauling railroad ties off ships coming from the south and loading them onto flatbed railroad cars. Initially, he wasn't very good at it, not with a lame right hand. But Braddock was strong and physical labor was something he never shied from. Not when he was training for a fight, and not when he was earning $4 a day operating a bailing hook. The work was irregular. There were days when he'd walk the three miles from his apartment in Woodcliffe down to the waterfront in Hoboken in vain. He would then turn north and walk another couple of miles to west New York, or farther, to Edgewater. Sometimes there would be work on the docks. Sometimes he would just turn around and head back home. It wasn't uncommon for him to walk 10 or 12 miles in a single day. When there was work to be had, he would keep working until the job was finished. A double shift meant double pay. Fatigue was for sissies. Braddock was teetering on the verge of anonymity as winter turned into spring in 1934. The talents he displayed in the late 1920s were fading rapidly from the collective memory of the boxing community. When aficionados discussed the men who might challenge Primo Carnera for the heavyweight championship... The name Jim Braddock never entered the conversation, but Braddock remembered, so did his manager Joe Gould. Perhaps a few of the men he'd punished with his big right hand did too. Everyone else, though, thought of James J. Braddock, when they thought of him at all, as a broken-down, washed-up, one-time contender who just didn't have quite enough talent or power. Even so, Gould continued to sell Braddock as a worthy opponent long after most promoters had decided he was through in the fight game. Gould spent hours pleading Braddock's case, insisting that all the fights he'd lost were merely the result of a bad right hand. He reminded everyone who'd listened that Jim Braddock was still only 28 years old, and that he was, after all, the same young man who'd broken the great Pete Latzo's jaw in four places, knocked out the heralded Tuffy Griffiths, and made mincemeat of Jimmy Slattery. He didn't mention that those events had taken place in the 1920s half a decade earlier. Meanwhile, Braddock's right hand was slowly healing. As he sweated on the dock, stripped to the waist his strength.